Welcome to the Everyday Ultra Podcast, a show designed to help you level up your training, crush your races, and ultimately become a better endurance athlete every single day. Whether you're an endurance athlete as a hobby or someone who wants to be the best in the sport, this is the show for you. I'm your host, Joe Corsion, and thank you so much for listening. Now, let's get into it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Corsione, and super excited about this episode because we're talking the granddaddy, the triple digit run that a lot of us ultra runners covet to get to at one point in our lives, which is the famed 100 mile race. The 100 mile race has been something that has been, like I said, one of the coveted accomplishments when it comes to ultra running. And I think a lot of times when I speak with ultra runners, that is the goal that people eventually want to build themselves up to or eventually want to run sometime in the future. And if you're listening to this, we just kicked off 2024 and you might be going for your first 100 mile race. You might be targeting those things and you might be wondering, how do I train for a 100 mile race? How do I really structure my program and my training enough to prepare enough for it? And also, what are some things that I might not expect? And let me tell you, in my first 100-mile race, there was a lot of things that I didn't expect that I wish I knew that I'm going to be sharing with you today. Now, before we dive into this episode, I want to give you a quick ultra training tip, and that is have gear that supports you in your training and your racing. And one piece of hydration gear that has helped me to level up my training and racing, this awesome handheld that I just started to use in my faster races or training on my shorter, faster runs. Because here's the thing, like we don't normally think to go out and bring water with us on our shorter runs or even something that's super fast but let me tell you not being hydrated out there can do a lot of damage to us so for me I like to carry at least one handheld with me with water but let me tell you I've struggled to find a handheld that doesn't make my arms hurt during races for gripping it for so long or one that's annoying to hold when I'm on training runs and now I found the perfect handheld that you don't have to grip or squeeze and it's comfortable. It's the new Hydropack Sky Flask which features their new padded thumb loop that's designed to take the work out of holding the flask. That way you don't have to worry about sore arms, tired hands, and you can still stay hydrated out there. Plus, it comes with an easy pop top cap that you don't have to worry about screwing on and off when you need to refill it at an aid station or a water fountain in the park no messes at all. Plus, with longer efforts on the trail, you can even attach one of Hydropack's filters to the bottle to scoop up more water on the trail in the handheld, so you don't have to worry about lugging so much water on with you. Now, the bottles are durable too. If you use the soft flasks in the Solomon packs that a lot of people use, you've used a Hydropack flask before. The handheld is similar, but it's actually one that you can just attach to your hand, and it's made by Hydropack themselves. I'm using their handhelds this year at Javelin 100 and my upcoming 50k at Elephant Mountain and all of my shorter runs, and because I know this would help you too, I partner with Hydropack to give you a 20% discount on any of their products, including the Sky Flask handheld, any soft flasks, filters, or anything else. And all you need to do is go to hydropack.com and use the code EverydayUltra20 at checkout to get 20% off your order. So that is EverydayUltra20 at checkout at H-Y-D-R-A-P-A-K.com, or you can go to the link in the show notes and use the code EverydayUltra2020 at checkout to get 20% off on anything on there. Excited for you to try out some of Hydropack's products. I know I'm going to be using it in my Cocodona training and my pretty much every day that I'm running out there. And uh, I hope you do too. And remember, nail your hydration strategy this race season. All right, everybody, let's get into this episode on how to run 
hundred miles, right? Now the hundred mile distance, right? I remember the first time, and I think a lot of you can resonate too. Like I remember the first time I ever heard about a hundred miles, my mind was blown. And I was like, oh my gosh, like how could I ever run a hundred miles? Because it just seems so long. And I think one of the biggest things is because it has triple digits, right? Most of the time when we're running a lot of races, it is a double digit kind of race, whether it is, you know, a marathon or a half marathon or a 50K or even a 100K, right? Like, sure, it's 100K in kilometers, but miles, it's still double digits, right? So the 100 mile distance can be daunting, but I'll tell you this, like, I want to share everything that helped me to train for all the 100 milers that I've done. I've finished every 100 miler I've done, which is 300 milers. Um, I've done 100 miles of climbing. I've done flat 100 milers, and I'm happy to kind of share everything all my secrets that is on this podcast to help you finish and train for your first 100 miles. So, so just a little bit of background about me in terms of like my 100 mile experience. So, I did my first 100 miler in April of 2022, and that was the Zion 100 miler. Um, and so that had a decent amount of climbing in it. It was also had a lot of elements in there, such as like heat and cold and ups and downs and flats. So, it was a perfect 100 miler that I did it first. And then I did my second 100 miler later that year at Havelina 100, which is one of the most competitive. 100 milers in the United States and I'm placing top 10 at that one um, and what was interesting you know at Zion 100 I placed top 10 male as well but um, that race wasn't as competitive as Javelina, so I made massive improvements from Zion to Javelina based on a lot of the things I learned on that first 100 miler that I did and then I did my third 100 miler in 2023 at Javelina once again and placed uh, top 15 male which was super super exciting so um, I've been through the block three times in 100 milers and also I'm coaching tons of athletes who are going for their first 100 miler I've coached athletes who've done their first 100 miler and so I know the experience on how to like shape a training program that will help you get to get there so I think first and foremost I think the biggest thing to kind of talk about with 100 miles is like what's the difference between 100 miles and every other race Obviously, it's a longer distance, but I want to go beyond the obvious on that. And I think really the biggest thing that, you know, is the difference between 100 miles and 100K, 50 miles, marathon, anything like that, is that with a 100 miler, it, you know, really requires a lot more mental fitness than I believe any other of the distances that you're kind of going to. Because there will be a point in a 100 mile race where you're going to be in pain for sure. And what's interesting is like, I thought that, you know, I would look at a lot of elite ultra running athletes and I would think, wow, these people don't feel pain in these hundred mile races. And, you know, now speaking with hundreds of elite ultra marathon athletes, almost everyone says that usually hundred miles still hurts them no matter what. And so it's one of those things where, you know, I think it gets to another level with the the pain and the fatigue that you get because, you know, 100K, 50 miles, like, yes, those things definitely hurt, but I think there is a deeper level of, of fatigue that comes with these 100 miles, and I've learned it firsthand, which I'll kind of talk about, you know, what shocked me in my first 100-mile race um, right after I talk about the big difference, but I think the biggest difference is not just, you know, the sheer amount of mileage, but how much reliance that you have on mental toughness versus physical toughness now, or physical fitness, I should say. Now, you still got to be physically fit, which we'll talk about later, but I think having a bigger, stronger effort on your mental toughness is going to be one of the biggest differentiators between 100 miles and any other ultra distance that you do that is less than 100 miles, right? 
So that's just the key thing to kind of think about, you know, is when you are structuring your training, don't just train your body, train your mind as well. And we'll talk about how to do that in here as well. But that is probably the biggest distinction on there as well. I think the other thing is that basically Murphy's law comes into effect with 100 miles, right? Because 100 miles is significantly longer than it's, you know, shorter cousin which is the 100k right think about it. 100k is 62 miles and the jump after that is to 100 where think about the typical kind of progressions beforehand right so we got like 5k 10k um half marathon marathon and then 50k and then 50 mile and then uh 100k right all those really don't have too much of like a 20 mile jump between each other if you're going on there as well but then it goes from 100k generally to 100 miles which is like 38 miles which is huge um so it there's a big gap between those two kind of things and so um the biggest thing with that is like knowing that murphy's law is in effect there so the longer the time like there is the inevitability that things will go wrong it, excuse me because of that there's a lot more variables that you're going to have to manage and you have to focus a lot more on problem solving. Now you got to be a problem solver in any type of ultra, like no matter what, whether it's a 50 K 50 mile, but because the time is so much longer than hundred miles, there is more room for things to inevitably gone wrong. So you need to be able to be problem solving. You need to be able to have a plan. You need to be able to like think through how you're going to work through these issues a lot more. So it becomes not just like a fitness game of you getting your feet across the finish line. It's also, you know, being a skill solver and be or a problem solver and being able to have the skills to you know fix something when it goes wrong out there so that's that's another big thing as well too so knowing that things are going to go wrong is super super important because you know i've seen people do marathons where like nothing goes wrong even 50ks where nothing goes wrong and once you start getting into like that 50 mile 100k distance that's where things will probably go wrong a little bit, but like a hundred miles, things will go wrong. Now that's not saying you're going to have a bad race because what I always say about a hundred miles and above is that it's not a matter of if things go wrong that determine the success in your race. It's a matter of how you deal with the things that do go wrong in the race that deal with your success. So just knowing that beforehand, like really, really can help you to understand that like things will go wrong and you're going to have to have alternate plans and you're going to have to think on the fly in order to get through that finish line as well. And then the last thing too is, you know, I, I think this is, and I guess this goes right into what shocked me at my first 100 mile race. So I guess we'll just start there. But I would say like another big difference between 100 miles and everything else is that the shorter the time you have left to go, the harder it's going to seem. And here's what I mean by that, because I don't know if that was the right way to phrase it, but I'll give you an example. So I remember before I did my first 100 miler, I would hear stories of people, you know, DNFing at these races where, you know, they would have 100 miles and they had 10 miles to go, right? They're at mile 90 and then they would drop. And I would ask them, I'd say like, hey, like what will cause you to drop? And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, it's probably injury, blisters, like any of these things that, you know, would inherently might stop someone physically because they just simply can't go on anymore. And I would hear a lot of the time the answer was like, I just mentally could not do it. And to me, that always blew my mind because I was like, wow, 10 more miles to go. Like you already ran 90. Like how does 10, 10 more miles, like really just intimidate you so much in that moment that you can't do it. And in my first hundred mile race, I understood that. And I've told this story multiple times on the podcast before, but basically my first 100 mile race, I was at mile 97. Now, meanwhile, I got battered. I was torn. I like got my butt kicked. Like I was feeling like the lowest point physically and mentally that I've been in a race before. And I remember going past someone and they told me, they said like, hey man, only three more miles to go. 
And I'm like mentally, my brain just started kind of freaking out because it was like, oh my God, I have three more miles to go. Like, what the heck? And because even though it was only three miles, which is something that I did, you know, in, in all the time in my daily training runs and everything like that. That three miles just seems so long in the moment because I was out there for so, so long. And in that moment, I realized I was like, oh, this is this is why people quit 90 miles in. And so um, I think that was the, one of the biggest things that shocked me was like knowing that even though I had only a little bit more to go, how long it seemed in my mind, given even even though I've already gone through so many miles in there as well. So I always say, like, do not underestimate like that distance in general, right? Like don't under, don't, don't underestimate a hundred miles. And I think a lot of times we hear stories of like David Goggins going out and running a hundred miles on a whim with no training or like, you know, I think now it's becoming more common than ever that people are just jumping into a hundred miles and like trying to do it with like minimal training. And some people are successful, but I, I don't think that there's a respect for the distance in those scenarios. Now, yes, if you want to go for it and you want to do this at the mental thing, um, I wouldn't advise it. Like, it's going to hurt. Like, this is something that you do need to train for. At the same time, like, you need to respect the distance. 100 miles is something not to take. I don't want to say, like, take lightly because I don't want to scare anyone from not doing it, but it is a big, big distance. And so I think respecting the distance and I did respect the distance at the time but again I, I thought like I was like oh by the time I'm at mile 97 it's gonna be like easy it's gonna be home free like I'm gonna be good and here I was mile 97 like holy shit I have three more miles to go so like the big thing I, I always want to say is like don't underestimate how much you have left to go meaning like oh it's gonna be three miles it's gonna be easy because like it's going to be you know it, it definitely is going to require a lot for you to kind of push and like that requires that mental training as well so that was one thing that definitely shocked at the 100 mile race. The other thing that really shocked me on my first one too is, you know, how you can have a seemingly perfect nutrition plan in your training and it can go miserably wrong in a 100 mile race. And so here's what I mean by that, right? So when I was training for my first 100 mile, I knew a little bit about nutrition. I wasn't like totally learned up on it, if that is the right terminology for it. But think about like when you're practicing your nutrition in the long runs, which by the way, if you aren't, you 100% should because you need to get, you know, used to taking in those things. But when you're doing in, you know, your training for a 100 mile race, you're probably not running 100 miles or doing the time on feet that's going to equate your 100 mile race in your training. And so every time you are doing that nutrition strategy, ultimately, you know, you aren't pushing it to the limits of where things can inherently go wrong with your GI system. Because just to give a little bit of an insight, and we'll do a whole kind of deep dive on nutrition in a later episode, but basically like when your body gets more fatigued and your muscles get more damaged and everything like that, when you're out there on a, on a long ultra running race, what happens is your body diverts resources and blood and attention to all those other areas and it pulls blood away from your digestive system. And so that's why a lot of times people do get upset stomachs at ultras is because we're not getting as much resources into the stomach to be able to digest things and so the longer you go the more prominent that gets which usually means at 100 miles like you have a much bigger risk of having GI issues on there now there are ways to go ahead and prepare for those things um, and really mitigate those things as well but the other thing in a 100 mile race that does also come into effect is that you're going to be at more aid stations and when you're at more aid stations you have much more options for food and sometimes something might sound good or might look good in the moment but you never tried it before so there's more opportunities for you to dip into something that you never had before and get wrecked along the way. Um, so 
for me, I remember like I had a flaw, like seemingly flawless nutrition strategy in the training for my first 100 mile race. And um, my stomach just got destroyed in my first 100 miler. And that was because I didn't have the right protocols in place to really um, in my training beforehand to um, go ahead and take care of my stomach in the right way to ensure that it was going to be bulletproof for 100 miles. So I think there's a larger emphasis more so than any other distance before that in terms of nutrition, which is something that I encourage everybody to get down um, when they're training for a hundred mile race. So that, that's what shocked me is because like, just because it really works well in your training doesn't mean that you have it as a lock for your hundred mile race. Um, there are things that you have to do to amply prepare for that so that you don't have those issues if they ever pop up in the race or you want to try and prevent that first and foremost. The last thing that I want to say that really shocked me is like how much your aid station time can compound in these 100 mile races. Now, granted, that seems like something that's like, hey, Joe, like I know that's the same thing for a 50K or a 50 mile or a 100K. But here's the thing. It's like you get to a point where your legs have never probably felt the way that they have before. And let me tell you, those chairs and those heaters or maybe they have a fire at those aid stations just to seem all the more tempting. And you can sit down to those things for a long, long time and really add up your time in the race. And what was super interesting is like, even though my second 100 mile race, you know, I came top 10 male at Hobbling 100, if you look at some of my splits, like I was sitting down at a lot of aid stations and basically I did an analysis of like looking at my training and, and kind of looking at and saying like, hey, if I just like walked in and out of these aid stations, I probably could have saved myself 50 minutes of time in the race, which would have been the difference, I think, between maybe me and, and ninth place, I think. Not 100% sure on that, but like it would have been, I mean, even so, 50 minutes and just like a, a time basis is really, really significant when it comes to, you know, uh, getting a certain PR in a race. So, um, but for me, like I didn't, I totally underestimated like how much time that really stacks up. And so, um, you know, going for time might not be as important for a lot of people, but here's the thing is I've seen stories of people who battle cutoffs because they sit too long at an aid station or they spend too much time there. So having a good aid station efficiency and not underestimating like, Hey, you know, I've been efficient at aid stations in a 50K or a 50 miler. Like, again, like because you're in uncharted territory, if you've done 100K, like up to 62 or maybe 50 milers, like past there. That is something like those aid stations, the temptation behind those aid stations become all the more tempting, um, you know, uh, in a hundred mile race. So that was another thing that really, really shocked me for sure. Um, and I think the last thing that, that shocked me as well is like, honestly, like, and this is not something to scare people, but, um, I will say like, I did not think my legs would feel that the way that they did in my first hundred mile race. Now there's ways to obviously get around that, but like, in all the hundred miles I've done, like they, they have hurt and, uh, it, it's a, it's a whole different feeling. Like, you know, when I did the second and third, hundred mile races, like I knew what it felt like before. And you're like, you can kind of prepare for it mentally, but like, it's a whole different beast. Like the first time you do it, I'm not saying that to discourage people. Like, I think that's why we do it. Like we want to be in that pain and push through. But again, that kind of taps into the first thing I was saying, where you got to be really mentally strong in order to crush these hundred mile races. So Anywho, that's in there as well. Now, um, I'll go through how to train for a 100 mile race. And so with the 100 mile race, I won't kind of talk about what I did originally and everything like that. I'll talk about like the how I look at, you know, again, I'm a coach. I'm an ultra marathon coach. I work with a ton of um, athletes who are training for their first 100 miler or their next 100 miler or their first ultra in general. And here's how I always suggest on how to go about running your first 100 mile race. So 
I'll kind of give you the process, and this is based on uh, not just my experience, but also research papers and you know what I've learned through uh, various certifications that I've done and research and books and talking with guests on the show. So um, all this is tried and true information on here as well. So the first step, and this is an obvious one, and a lot of you might listening have already completed this step, but it is one that is actually one that should be done with intention that a lot of people just kind of gloss over, and that is pick a race. Now, I know you might be like, yeah, Joe, that's obvious, but here's the thing. Like you want to pick a hundred mile race that's going to number one, fit your goals. Number two, going to be in a time frame that you can amply train for, which I'll talk to about in a little bit. And number three, like one that you are comfortable doing for your first 100 mile race. Because here's the thing, with 100 mile races, there are so many different options, right? There are really mountainous 100 mile races at high elevation, there's flat 100 mile races, there's races that are just looped courses for a mile that you just do 100 times. Um, there's like road 100 mile races, which are crazy. Like, um, So there's so many different types of 100 mile races. So for you, like you wanna define you know, a race that number one, fits your goals, meaning like, what do you want long-term in the sport? Do you want to have like these rad experiences? Do you want to like be in the mountains? Do you want to just go ahead and complete hundred miles? Like what are your goals and go ahead and define that first and foremost on the long-term basis before you decide which hundred mile race that you want to do. Secondly, um, you want to determine if you have enough time to train for that race. Now, generally, and I've talked about this on the podcast a lot, is I follow Jason Koop's minimum maximum principle when it comes to assessing if an athlete, and even myself, uh, if we have enough time to train for a race in order to be well prepared. And so for 100 miles specifically, um, what you need to do is be able to train, and when I say train, I mean run, you need to have nine hours of running, at least nine hours of running, sorry, at least nine hours of running, not nine hours, at least nine hours of running in your peak six weeks of training leading up to your 100 mile race um, and generally that assumes that there is a you know um, a two or three week taper depending on what you're putting in there depending on like personal preference on there but in your highest six weeks of training you should be running at least nine hours in order to be amply ready for your 100 mile race so how you kind of back into that is making sure like what your running volume is at now if you can ramp up in a safe enough time frame to get to that point where you can do at least nine hours of running a week for that six week period. And ultimately you should be able to, you know, kind of see, okay, this is a good time frame for me for my first hundred mile race. Or if something seems a little bit too aggressive um, and doesn't fit that minimum maximum principle, you might want to find something later on into the race as well. So that's one thing you need to consider. The other thing you need to consider is the course of the race, because um, a race with like you know, 20,000 feet of vert or 15,000 feet of vert that it's in super mountainous terrain, a high elevation is going to be a lot more difficult than a race like a Javelina hundred or, you know, a flatter kind of race, like a, you know, keys 100, which is like all on road and it's hundred miles and it's like dead flat. Right. So like how the course conditions are set up is going to determine how hard that hundred mile race is. Now I'm not saying you have to go ahead and pick a flat 100 mile for your first one. You just want to make sure that you can be able to train for those things. And it's one that you enjoy as well, because let's just face it, like, you know, like the Keys 100 and maybe these easier 100 mile races, they're accessible to a lot of people. But if you don't like running on the road or if you don't like flat stuff and you want to be in the mountains, like, don't do it. If you're not going to enjoy it, don't do the race. Um, just make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into if you're like going into a much harder race and there, there are more specific things that you're going to have to train and kind of improve on and things like that as well. So always know the course when you're picking on it. Now, if you want a suggestion for a first 100 mile race um, that I always like to do, or I always like to suggest to athletes, I would say, first and foremost, make sure you enjoy it. But some of the my favorite um, 
picks that I like to do for first 100 mile races. Um, for me, Javelina 100 is always like a go-to that comes to mind. And the reason why I like Javelina is because it has a great balance between difficult and also easy at the same time. So it kind of is like a Goldilocks in terms of like a 100 mile race. And what do I mean by that? So terrain wise, there is it's really, I don't want to say flat because there's about 6,000 feet of climbing in it, but it's all rolling hills. Like you're not summiting mountains. Um, it's pretty much a rolling climb. So it gives you a little bit of a challenge where it's not dead flat and it's on trails. Um, but it's like, not like a crazy amount of vert where it's going to crush anyone or require you to do a ton of climbing, uh, training in there as well. So I think, um, that's one thing that really works in Javelina's favor. The second thing too, is, um, it's a party. It's super fun. It's exciting. It's energetic. And I think those are like the cool experiences. Like you want to kind of create for your hundred mile like, debut because like that allows you to just get a ton of like energy and everything like that too. So that's another thing I like about it. And it becomes difficult because the heat, it's a really hot race and it allows you to have an element of difficulty in there that doesn't make it like a, a lock that you're doing the 100 mile race because the dnf rate of javelina is still pretty high but um or i should say because of the heat um but it is one where it's like if you can master those things it's great so i like javelina as another choice the other ones that i also suggest too are like hennepin 100 um tunnel hill 100 um uh, I'm trying to think of uh, the other one off the back of my head, the Canal Corridor 100 milers. So these three are like pretty much dead flat 100 milers that, you know, are pretty accessible. Now, um, they might not be as scenic. They might not be as, you know, awesome as like, a, you know, some of these mountain trail races. But if you're looking for one that's like, I just want to get 100 miles done, that's the one to go for. Now, if you're looking for ones with a little bit more climbing and everything like that, some great first options are Zion 100, which was my first 100 miler. That one's a great one. San Diego 100 too. That one is a little tougher, but um, it is a good first solid 100 mile race as well um, because it's got a good amount of climbing. It's got a good amount of heat, but it's pretty runnable terrain. So you have it in there and it's it's a good thing as well. So uh, I like that one for a first 100 miler as well. That's a little bit more on the difficult side. Now, if you're looking for some other 100 miler options that are really accessible for um, they have a lot more vert um, and a little bit more difficult side, but they're good still for first 100 milers. Run Rabbit Run 100 miler in Colorado is a great option because it's got a lot of vert. It's also a hard rock qualifier, but it's pretty runnable along the way, and it's an awesome course with great energy. So Run Rabbit Run is usually one that I suggest for first 100 milers if you know you're looking for a little bit more of a challenge on there. Um, High Lonesome is another one too. That is a grueling race, but um, it is there's a lot of runnable stuff on there as well. It is a lottery, so it is a little tougher to get in for that one um, but that one's an interesting one where you can you know go ahead and, and get in the mix on that one too and then another one even though it is kind of gnarly um, but still I think doable from like a hundred mile perspective is Mogion Monster um, that one is like pretty gnarly but it is a one that is solid for a first 100 miler if you give yourself enough time to train for it it's definitely technical it's definitely got a lot of climbing and everything like that but it's nothing like too crazy like where you're battling you know a lot of elevation or you're battling like you know uh, altitude or a lot of things like that so Mogion Monster is another good pick that that I would go for on there so just some recommendations but just know that like really any 100 miler as long as you prepare for it you should be good to go with that as well so those are just things so pick a race and that's what I would go for on there now now, the next thing you want to do is define your goals for that specific race. So you want to define the goals. Once you pick the race is define the goals for the race. Do you just want to finish? Do you want to get a certain time? Do you want to do any of those things? Now, here's here's what I want to say is that if you are going for your first 100 mile race, and this is something that I always recommend for anyone doing the first of their distance of choice, um, is that is your number one goal 
if it is your first time doing the distance, should be to finish. Should be to finish. Now, I'm not saying you can't shoot to do well. I'm not saying you can't have visions of like, I want to hit a PR. I want to like get a certain time. Like those things are great. But bar none, your first goal should be to finish. Now, again, I'm not saying that to discourage you from like shooting for big goals or anything like that because listen, I'm training for Cocodona 250. I've never done a 200 mile race before. So for me, like, yes, my, my top goal is to finish. But if the day goes well, I would love to win the race. I think that would be sick. But like my number one, first and foremost goal is to finish that race. Um, and so I, I saying this because if you are going for your first hundred miler, your first and foremost goal should be to finish it. But you can also set higher goals along the way, such as I want to do this in sub 24 hours. I want to do this in 30 hours, or I want to do this, you know, um, I want to get, you know, in this certain time or I want to get this certain belt buckle, right? Having those goals in there are going to allow you to focus those things in your training so you can ultimately move around that. And that's also too for people who have done 100 miles before and they want to improve, right? That's where you kind of get more into the nitty gritty of like, oh, I want to get it in this certain amount of time or I want to be able to PR or I want to be able to, you know, do this whole thing without without walking, right? Like those are some things that you can go ahead and define for yourself. But your biggest thing is to find the goals that you want in the race because how you modify your training is going to be the biggest thing on there as well. So you want to define your goals for the race. And again, if you're for your first 100 miler, then your goal should be primarily to finish. And we'll talk about how you can train for that. Now, the next thing, as I kind of said before, you want to plan ahead for your training duration. Again, minimum, maximum principle. You want to make sure you're running at least nine hours a week in your peak six weeks of training for your 100 miler in order to have enough time. So training your things as well. But how do you go ahead and actually structure those that training, right? Um, here's how I like to structure training programs and what is seen to be pretty optimal in terms of like the recommendations from the USCO ultra running certification from many other coaches in the industry as well. And also it has worked well for me and my training. Um, so there's two ways to structure your training that layer on top of each other. The first thing is you want to work on your weaknesses first and then hone in on your strengths later into the training. So what do I mean by that, right? Let's just say you're training for a race like Havelina 100, right? And you have it in October. And right now it's January, right? So um, what you would do is you would think about what your weaknesses are. Are your weaknesses running on trail? Are your weaknesses going fast? Are your weaknesses, you know, dealing with downhill? Are your weaknesses, any of those things, right? What are the weaknesses that you need to hone on in order to be successful in the race? Is it nutrition? Is it any of those things? Find those weaknesses and then work on them early as possible in your training. And the reason why you want to do this is because you want to give yourself as much time to tweak and refine those things just so ultimately you have more runway to do a lot of trial and error to really get the thing down right um, so that race day comes around you're able to be strong in those areas right and you give yourself more time to work on those things a lot of times where I see a lot of mistakes is a lot of people work on their weaknesses closer to the race and because they think oh I should just hone in the strengths first and then once I'm fit work on the weaknesses the problem is that is that you don't give yourself enough time to work on the weaknesses and this also goes into why you should work on or hone in on your strengths closer to the race. If you're working on your weaknesses closer to the race, you can be psyching yourself out in terms of like your confidence levels because like your weaknesses, I mean, everybody knows when you're doing things that you're weak at, like generally you're like, wow, like I feel like I suck at this thing. And that's not the mindset we want you to go into going into a hundred mile race. So generally we always say work on weaknesses first and foremost in your races or in your training for a hundred mile race and then work on your strengths later on as well. Now, the only caveat to this is like mental toughness, which 
again, that will kind of come closer to the race because you can work on mental toughness too, like in your early long runs and things like that as well. But I'll show you like probably one of the best ways to work on mental toughness, which inevitably will lead later on to the race uh, or later on to the training. I keep saying race, but later on to the training. Um, but that is just one thing you always want to define are what are my weaknesses that I need to work on to be successful in this race and go ahead and do those things and then focus on that first. Now, the second layer of how you should structure your training is work is go from least specific to most specific. And so what do I mean by that is earlier on, you want to focus on least specific stuff, such as speed work, such as intervals, all those kind of things as well, because you know, you're not going to be doing that intensity. You shouldn't be doing those intensity, uh, when you're doing like eight to nine RPE or like when you're doing high intensity kind of work, VO two max level stuff. Like I know this might be kind of getting into the nitty gritty, but basically high intensity sprinting kind of level training. You don't want to be doing that closer to the race because you're not going to be doing that in a hundred mile race. And if you are doing that in a hundred mile race, you might be setting yourself up for a little bit of disaster, right? So I think that is something that you need to really just consider when doing your, uh, structuring your training. And then most specific is where you're going to be doing a lot more of the long run training, where you're going to be doing a lot more race simulation, where you're going to be doing a lot more trail work, where you're going to be doing a lot more specific stuff closer into the race. And because that is, is because we're generally focusing on our specific, um, endurance system. We're focusing on the specifics of the race itself. And ultimately we're building the confidence to get in there as well. And the mental muscle memory to go ahead and say like, hey, because you are training at trails, you're training on course specific terrain because you're doing the specificity of the long runs, our body gets much more used to it in that moment so we can go ahead and train for it in there as well. Now, how do you actually structure that training, right? So obviously we have weaknesses first and then strengths towards the end. We have, um, you know, least specific to most specific, right? We have those things. And so that's kind of the balance you want to structure on it as well. But what do those day-to-day runs kind of look like? Now, Everybody should generally have a training plan that is unique to them in an ideal world, right? And so that's why, like, for me, I tend to not say go for, like, these cookie-cutter plans online. And again, if that's all you can go for and that's all that you can, you know, afford, whether it's coaching or anything like that, not a big deal at all. I would just be 100% mindful of what that training plan was designed for. And I'll give you an example. When I went for my first 50K, this is not 100 miles, um, because for all my 100 miles, I've worked with the coach specifically to, to make the plan for me. But um, with the uh, with the training plan that you find online, and for me, I was training for my first 50K, and I found a training plan online. Now, the training plan was designed for an intermediate runner. And for me at the time, I was like, oh, I'm an intermediate runner. I've done marathons before. I've done all that stuff. But really, it was more so for intermediate 50K as in someone who has ran a trail 50K before. And I was just blasting myself in terms of like my capabilities and my volume. And like, I was just feeling pretty burnt out. And like, I was definitely overreaching in terms of my training because I was using a plan that wasn't designed for where I was at now. So if you are going to use a plan online, be 100% sure that it's designed for your skill levels, your schedule, your routines. And if not, I always suggest working with a coach to come up with a personalized plan to have those things on there as well. So again, I don't want to sit here and say like, yeah, like I obviously I'm a coach, um, everything like that. But I'm not saying that to promote my coaching service. I'm just saying, be mindful of the plan that you're picking. And if you're writing your plan, your own plan, then you can use these principles to kind of develop those things as well. So that's generally where I'm coming on. But how would you structure those things? Just given that what we've kind of discussed uh, right off the bat with hundred miles. So 
on the least specific side of things earlier on, that's where you want to generally work on a lot of speed work sessions. And then towards the end of the training, um, that's where you're going to be working on more long run kind of stuff as well. Now, even in those weeks, even in the weeks when you're doing speed focused stuff and you're doing longer runs at the end, most of your training runs should be easy training easy training. And what I define by easy training, I like to use rate of perceived effort, which is inherently ranking how you feel on a scale of one to 10, one being the most easy, 10 being the hardest. And so generally I like to always structure my training runs and what I use for most of my training runs for hundred mile training and even more so with 200 mile training is two to three RPE. That should be most of your runs. Even if you're on a speed work phase, at least four of your runs four three to four of your runs, I should say three to four of your runs should probably be around the two to three RPE phase. And then once you get closer to the race, when you're doing a lot more endurance training on the long run kind of phase, that's where like, you know, at least four of your runs should be easy training in there as well. Because when you do easy training, think about like how you're running at these 100 mile races, which I'll kind of talk about pacing and everything like that. With those 100 mile races, ultimately you are running at a two to three RPE for the most part. You want to run slower because you are tapping into your endurance system. And when you tap into your endurance system, that's where you are burning more fat. And ultimately you're able to go for much longer as well. Because the problem is if you run a little too fast in 100 mile, which I'll kind of be talking about, um, that's where a lot of people burn themselves out. They kind of death march it into the finish. I mean, honestly, this is what I did in my first 100 miler, which I'll kind of talk about as well. And you basically have a really, really tough time just trying trying to finish that ending section. Whereas if you take it slower, you're able to go for longer periods of time without being overly fatigued. And you want to be working on training that endurance system to be able to carry you further, which is why most of your runs should be easy training. Now I will say if you're unfamiliar with speed work and maybe you're cutting it close on a hundred mile race and you're not sure to do speed work, honestly, just do easy runs, just do two to three easy runs. It took me years before I actually went into speed work, not because I didn't, wasn't comfortable doing it, but honestly, I didn't think it was useful, but I still got through a lot of my ultras in there as well. I think for a hundred mile races, it is beneficial to do speed work, which we're going to do a whole episode on speed work, how to structure your workouts, what the, uh, you know, all, all the optimal things in there as well. But if you're unsure about speed work or maybe you're unfamiliar with speed work and you're not sure as well, honestly, if you're just doing most of your training runs at a two to a three RPE and then adding in some four to five RPE runs as well to get a little faster on some of the shorter runs in terms of duration, Ultimately, you're going to build your endurance engine to get through that finish line. And if your goal is just to finish, honestly, you can go through a whole block without speed work and you can be good to go as well. So that is generally what I say is like the easier, the better when it comes to your running uh, in terms of training for a hundred mile race. Now, if you want to incorporate speed work and, um, I always say do it earlier on into the plan and focus on that a lot more. And um, that is one thing you really want to hone into if you want to increase your average pace, if you want to increase your fitness. Because like for me, I didn't have such a big focus on speed work for most of my ultra running career. And then once I first implemented it into, you know, my 100 mile training, that's where I really got to see some gains in terms of like my overall pace. Um, and so um, if you're going to do speed work, the first thing that you really need to know is that you need to ease into it. Um, you don't want to jump right into speed work because that's ultimately going to give you a one-way ticket to the PT's office and we don't want that. So I always like to say you want to do at least four to six weeks of strides before you hop into speed work sessions. Now strides, just really quickly, what it is is you just do an easy run 
at a two to a three RPE, nothing to it. And then after the run, what you're going to do is four to six sets of accelerating into not an all out sprint, but close to a sprint at a high intensity, hold that intensity for 15 seconds and then slow down and jog it out for 30 seconds and then repeat that for four to six times. What you're doing is you're getting your body used to that higher intensity and higher intensity load so that it can handle that speed work once you go into it as well. So when I'm working with an athlete who are preparing for a speed block, I always put them on strides first and foremost to get them into that uh, that physiology and that musculoskeletal adaptation to be able to handle the speed work once we throw into it as well. So we're getting kind of like deeper into this thing as well but do i would say like do a base building session like where you're just kind of doing easy mileage start to throw in some strides for four to six weeks then you want to implement some speed work and like i usually like to do two speed work sessions per week um in those early parts of training for a hundred mile race and then once you get closer to the race you're going to drop down the intensity and you're going to increase the volume and start to make your long runs a lot longer you're going to start to make your easy runs uh, much more frequent and ultimately you're going to get to the point where you're stacking up that where you're closer to the race, your primary workouts are going to be long runs and you're going to be focusing on those things where you might still be doing one speed workout a week, but it's not necessary. But whereas earlier in the training, you might be doing two speed workouts a week. So just something to think about in terms of how you structure your training. And that's going to be the biggest thing. Now, why am I going on and on about this? Because the most important thing to focus on in a hundred mile race is fitness. That's it. Fitness, right? And this is going to start to get into the conversation about all the things that you need to go through and really, really hone in on when it talks to training for a 100-mile race. And by the way, this this goes for even more so than not just 100-mile races, but it goes for 200-mile races. It goes for 50K. It goes for 50-mile. It goes for marathon. Like, your number one priority when it comes to training should be getting yourself fit enough to go the distance. Because here's the thing. A lot of times when people go for a 100-mile race, they focus on, oh, I need to get in tons of climbing, or I need to get in the heat training, or I need to get in you know the downhill specificity yes all those stuff is great you need to be prepared for those things but if you're not fit none of those things matter so i always say there's one mantra when you're structuring your training of what you want to focus on especially for a 100 mile race and that is are you fit enough to get to the finish line and what's going to build that fitness is that good training that i mentioned before and how you structure it in your training as well and so That's like the most important thing is fitness because you want to be able to get that fitness up there as well. Now, the next thing, which is equally as important as fitness, is the mental fitness, the mental toughness. You need to callous your mind to the point where it can handle tough things throughout the race itself. Now, one of the biggest ways that I like to say to practice the mental toughness, right, and there's a bunch of strategies and techniques that we'll go over in another podcast episode where we talk about how to play the mind games to be able to get your mind to go through on those things. But where you're going to get that mental practice is in your long runs. So when you're doing your long runs, when they're like three hours, four hours, right? Like these really, really long runs where you're out there on the trail, that's where you're going to hit a lot of these low, the lowest points in your training. And you want to be able to, in the moment, be able to have that mental gymnastics to, you know, see, hey, what am I doing when things get tough? How do I get over this thing? How do I ultimately, you know, Make sure that I'm pushing through when I start to feel tired, right? You can practice those things in your long runs to help you go through and push through those inevitable lows that will come up when you're in a 100-mile race. Now, one of the best ways to practice mental toughness, and I would suggest this, is doing a race that is anywhere between, you know, six to eight hours long. And this can come into a tune-up race where you're signed up for maybe like a 50-mile race and prep for the 100-miler, or it can just be a very long training run where you're just going out and practicing those things. And the reason why I like to schedule these long runs, these really, really long runs for people who need that mental kind of toughness and confidence building 
is because I truly believe that, you know, when, you know, you're doing like a four hour run, which I know a lot of times people have, I've said this on the podcast and I still believe that is, you know, there is, there's a point where too long can be long on a long run. And so like, I wouldn't say like, you know, make all of your long runs like eight to 10 hours. Cause there are some physiological downsides to that. Like really for me, like, you know, for my last 200 miles, the longest run that I did outside of tune up races or anything like that was five hours. Um, I rarely go over four or five hours in terms of like programming a long run. But if you do need that, like, mental callousing and practicing to really get into that dark place where your mind is that's where you would probably want to start to structure a long run that's six to eight hours long so you can get into that point where you could do that as well now ideally you want to do that in a tune-up race like call it like a 50 mile race or something like that which we'll talk about as well but that's just something that you want to like get down for sure when you are training for your next 100 mile race is that mental toughness and strategies as well and some strategies just really really quickly to kind of give you some And again, we'll do a whole podcast diving deep on this, but some mental strategies to help you get through it are number one, setting micro goals. And what I mean by setting micro goals is just focusing on the next aid station, focusing on the next checkpoint, focusing on the next step, focusing on the next mile, right? Because a hundred miles is a long fucking time. And when you think about, you know, you've done 30 miles, you're like, oh my gosh, I have 70 miles to go. That's an overwhelming thought. But instead, if you can say, hey, all I need to do is just go to the next water station in my long run or when you're in the race, all I need to go is go to the next aid station or all I need to go is just go to the next checkpoint or all I need to do is make the next step. You break down the things, digestible pieces so your mind can handle those things a lot better. And once you do and get to that smaller checkpoint, you celebrate that win internally. So you give your brain that reward of being able to go through and push to get to that point as well. So you're not just really looking through at the entire race as a whole and psyching yourself out because you have 60, 50 miles to go. And instead you, all you're focusing on is getting to that next aid station, everything. So that's one of the biggest mental toughness things. The second thing is coming up with, you know, uh, mantras or things that resonate with you. Now, uh, mantras are interesting because sometimes they resonate with people, sometimes they don't. Um, I think mantras can resonate with everybody if you have the one that resonates best with you. So for me, some of the things that help me are, uh, I have a mantra that says, this is who I am and this is what I do. Um, I got that from Scott Jurek from reading his book North. And another one uh, that I really like too as well is, is the quicker I go, the, the quicker I'm done. And uh, that I know for me is like a lot of the times I want to be able to get out of pain and I know that like a lot of like the weaknesses or like the, not weaknesses, but the, the, the dumb decisions I make are in a race are to, you know, mitigate that pain that's in there. So I tell myself, I was like, well, the best way to do it is the faster I go, the quicker this is over. And that inherently serves me in there as well. Now that might not resonate with you. That might not resonate with a lot of people. And if you're looking for mantras that do resonate with you, I always say, look at quotes that where you have read them, they have resonated with you deeply at a level where like you feel it in your bones and you're like, oh my gosh, like, let me get this and, and get that to, you know, uh, it, it gets to your core. Cause I believe when you read a quote that, that hits you right in that core and that center, ultimately that will, um, that means that it's speaking to you. That means that it's awakening a voice. There's a voice inside of you that knows that quote to be true within yourself. So um, I would say, look at the quotes that have resonated with you in the past and ultimately come up with something that is going to be able to have that and have those uh, mantras ready to go. So those are just a two mental strategies that you can use. Obviously, there's so many more that we can go through in another podcast episode, but those are two together in there as well. But you want to be able to apply that in your training, especially in your long runs to get there in there as well. 
Hey everybody, just want to take a quick break in this episode because I partnered with a company recently that has just been a game changer when it comes to clothing and apparel that I'm wearing on my long runs. And the one thing that I get frustrated with when it comes to running gear or apparel in general is when it doesn't last long. Whether it rips, tears, or just wears away, it sucks to have to keep buying new stuff. Plus, doing that isn't sustainable for the planet. But I recently started trying this gear that lasts long, has a five-year guarantee, is super comfortable, has extremely fun colors, which is so important, right? And helps to support clean water programs around the world. The gear is from Janji, and you gotta check them out. They make high-performance running apparel, such as shorts, tanks, shirts, jackets, and more, all built to explore the world on the run. Not only do they have a five-year guarantee where they will replace any product that wears away, but their stuff is super comfortable, breathable, and easy to move in, especially in the winter months when you're bundled up a ton. Plus, 2% of their sales go towards nonprofits working on viable clean water solutions, so it's a way to give back and feel good about where your money is going. They have super bright colors and artwork designed by talented artists all across the world, so you'll stand out on the trail, which is, like I said, one of the most important things. My favorite products have been the Transit Tech Short and the Run All Day Tee. I like the Transit Shorts because they're lightweight, easy to move on my runs, especially when I'm climbing hills or doing faster efforts because they don't have a liner. And when you don't have a liner, I feel like you can move around a lot, lot better when it comes to doing these faster efforts on the trail. And I love the Run All Day Tee because it feels like you're barely wearing anything out there, which keeps you really, really cool on a hot day and doesn't feel like you're overwhelmed on a cold day as well. So it feels like you're not wearing anything that's holding you down. So I 100% suggest you try out Johnji's clothing. And if you're looking to test drive it, you can get 15% off your order by using the code EverydayUltra15 at checkout when you go to johnji.com. That's spelled J A N J I.com. Or you can go to the link in the show notes directly. Use code EverydayUltra15 at checkout to get 15% off your order. And if you're rocking Johnji in your next adventure, let me know and hope you give them a shot. Go to johnji.com and use code EverydayUltra15 at checkout to get 15% off. All right, everybody, let's get right back into this episode here. Now, the next thing when it comes to 100 miles, and I kind of mentioned this before, is you need to get down a bulletproof nutrition strategy. And I kind of mentioned that earlier on. With the nutrition strategy, you need to make sure that you're testing it in your training and that you're setting yourself up for success by doing that inside of your training as well. That's like the the next thing. After the fitness, after the mental toughness, the nutrition is the next piece that I usually like to tackle on there. And I get it. There's a lot of conflicting information about nutrition out there. How many calories should I do? How many carbs should I put in? And I will say that for the most part, nutrition is definitely very specific to the person in in terms of what foods people are able to get down. But there are some general principles that you can follow for nutrition. And I'll talk about how to test those in your 100 mile training in this episode as well. So from a general perspective with nutrition, um, and there's a whole deep dive episode we can do on this that we'll be coming out with soon. But really what you want to do is practice to get to a level where you can consume anywhere between 250 to 400 calories an hour, where you can also consume 50 to 100 grams of carbs per hour. And generally, the more calories you take in, the more carbs you take in as well. So those two are very much correlated in terms of the input that you're taking in. And then also too, you want to think about sodium and hydration. And sodium, you can be anywhere... Depending on how hot the race is or how much you sweat, um, you would go from 400 milligrams of sodium an hour to anywhere upward of 1,200 milligrams of sodium an hour. Um, If you're interested in finding out how to 
like assess how much sodium and water that you generally need in. Um, listen to the podcast episode we did on, nutri- on hydration and electrolyte strategies. That actually, we have you go through a sweat rate test, which is totally for free, no charge. Like it's totally free. How awesome is that? Um, but you can do a sweat rate test on any hour easy run and start to back out on how much water and how much hydration that you need um, in order to be successful. But generally, the range goes from like 400 to 1200 milligrams of sodium. And then water wise, again, you'd want to do a sweat rate test to figure those things out. But it could be anywhere between, you know, 500 milliliters of water to up to a liter of water an hour, just depending on how hot it is and how much water you need to take in. But the reason why I have these ranges here is because, like I said before, everyone is different. And what you want to do is if you're unsure or maybe you haven't started to eat when you're running or you just plainly are just maybe, hey, I don't know if I've been doing this the right way. What you'll want to do is start at the low end of all of the ranges that I gave you before. So what do I mean by that? Let's just say you have a long run, which by the way, where you're going to test nutrition is any run that's over 90 minutes. And usually that means pretty much at least a two hour run. So I know for me, anytime a run is longer than 90 minutes, I'm usually consuming something on the run. Um, Not necessarily because it helps to increase performance out there, but also too, I like to train my gut along the way to be able to handle food when I'm running as well. And that's a big component, right? Like not only do you want to test the food to make sure you don't get sick, you need to make sure that you're training your gut constantly to handle food while running because you're going to be eating a lot in these 100 mile races. A quote that's always resonated with me is with J- from Jason Coop and he said, an ultra marathon is just an eating contest on the go. And it's so, so true because if you don't eat, if you don't have a good nutrition strategy, there's no way our body's going to be able to have the fuel and the energy necessary to continue to push on. Now, of course, we can grit it out through mental toughness and strategies and things like that. But generally, if we're underfueled, that's one thing that can lead to a death march. And to be honest too, I shouldn't say to be honest, but the studies show that the number one cause of DNFs in an ultra, and this probably goes for 100 miles as well, even though this is more broad based on an ultra, is gastrointestinal issues, aka nutritional issues and stomach being upset. So if you can nail this down, you not only set yourself up for success, but you also can capitalize and take off the table one of the biggest reasons why people don't finish 100 miles, right? So something to think about on there. But anyways, where it was kind of going back before I kind of spiraled down a, uh, a tailspin on there is you want to start on the low ran- the low end range of those ranges before. So like I mentioned before, the range for uh, calories, 250 to 400 hours. If you've never done anything before, start at 250 calories an hour. And then if you haven't started anywhere on carbs, start with like 50 to 70 carbs an hour and start with 400 milligrams of sodium and a little bit less of water, right? Like the 500 milliliters of water per hour. Now you want to do those on a per hour basis, as I mentioned before. So all those things are on a per hour basis and you want to test them on your runs that are at least two hours greater than 90 minutes, but usually like, you know, if it's an hour 45, like that's negligible. So um, let's just call it greater than 90 minutes, right? And what you want to do is take in those every hour. Now, generally when it comes to nutrition, what I always suggest is the more often you eat, the better. And so I like to take in all of those quantities in increments of 20 minutes, um, just because you give your stomach a steady drip of all the calories and carbs and hydration that's coming in. And you're not like bombing it at the top of the hour just to have that on there. I used to do that when I first started getting into ultras and endurance. And let me tell you, like I would end up getting sick because what happens is when you bomb your stomach like that, it's not in the process of digestion. And because of that, when you give it all the calories at once, you're already running. You're already in, you know, a state of fatigue. You're already in a state of activity and it's going to be like, oh crap, we need to like go and give a lot of resources here and 
it's going to almost shock the system. So I like to do like a steady drip of it, 20 minutes. You can do 30 minutes too. You can even do 10 minutes. Whatever increment works for you, that's what I would suggest though. And I would go in the low end of those ranges. Now, how do you know if that's the right end of the range for you? Um, the first thing is you want to notice your energy levels on the run and throughout the day. So on the run, if you feel like you're fueling and towards the end, you're feeling still a little bit lightheaded and bonky and maybe like your legs feel a little bit more sore than normal, you might want to start to bump up those contents on each of the ranges that I mentioned before. So the next run, you might go to 300 calories. You might go to 80 grams of carbs. You might go to 600 milligrams of sodium. Now, gr granted, generally, I think the, the hydration and the sodium thing are a whole different ball game than it comes to nutrition. So, um, and again, I have that episode on hydration and uh, electrolytes, which you can listen to, but nutrition wise, we'll talk on that too. We'll talk on that specifically as well. So you don't want to increase everything off the bat, uh, is basically what I'm trying to say here, but you want to isolate a lot of the variables when you're testing these things out. So what do I mean by that? Right. Let's just say, you know, we feel a little bonky on a run. We might keep our hydration and electrolytes the same, but we might want to bump up the nutrition to see if that works. And if we know, assuming that all the other variables are, you know, intact, such as sleep levels, stress levels, weather, terrain, everything like that, and we find that we have better performance and we're feeling a lot better, that could be a good sign that we are getting closer to the range of calories and carbs that we need in order to really get out there as well. Now, you will test these, like I said, on any run more than 90 minutes, and the best way to test these on your long runs for sure. Now you're going to want to do at least, at least one or two nutrition tests and throughout the thing. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean just test your nutrition once or twice. You should be doing this on every long run. However, it is really, really tough to really, um, and again, I'll do a whole episode on nutrition on this, but figure I'd give you as much information as possible. It is really, really hard to be confident in your nutrition when you're doing a run four hours or less. So generally, I like to suggest any runs from like five to eight hours where you're testing your nutrition out to the fullest because once you kind of get past that four-hour mark, that's like where your body starts to get into a deeper level of fatigue and you don't know how the nutrition is going to react in those scenarios that are going to be longer, especially when you're on 100 miles. So I usually say at least, you know, if you're unfamiliar with nutrition or I should say if you're unfamiliar with your nutrition strategy, you want to at least do those long runs at least once or twice throughout your training until you feel confident that you can get it in there as well. And usually what sign of success looks like with the nutrition is, like I said, you feel like you have good energy levels on the run and also after the run as well. So I know I didn't touch on that, but basically you want to monitor your energy levels throughout the day afterwards. Are you feeling like you're overly tired? Are you feeling like you're sluggish? Are you feeling like you're falling asleep? That could be a sign of maybe not feeling as well on the run because you're in a severe caloric deficit, right? But if you're feeling pretty good, assuming all the variables are equal, that can be a good sign that you're on the right track with nutrition and calories as well. So um, that's what I would do for nutrition testing for sure in there as well. And the last tip I'll kind of get, and again, we'll, I keep saying we'll go deeper in a nutrition episode because I don't want to make this episode 100% about nutrition, just something to prime everybody. But you want to try as much foods as you possibly can. And the reason why that is is because you want to be sure to have a Rolodex of foods that you can go to in case one of them starts to feel disgusting or think disgusting or like, you know, your body might not want to get it down. Like, I'll give you an example. I remember for years I had trained on cliff, uh, cliff bars and I loved cliff bars. They never gave me a problem. And then at the 100 mile race, the first one I ever did, I was so sick of cliff bars by like mile 30. Like, and I can't even eat them. I'm on the run. 
excuse me, I can't even eat them on the runs today um, because uh, I'm, I'm like pretty much scarred from them for some reason. So um, I shouldn't say some reason. It's because I've probably consumed like my whole weight in Cliff Bars. Um, but in that moment, I didn't have any other alternatives. And that was like a really big mistake of mine because I was just so used to just taking on Cliff Bars and, and goos and gels and things like that. And like, meanwhile, like they had all these options at the aid station. I hadn't tested those things. So I was basically rolling the dice on those things. And I had really, really bad stomach issues because of it. You want to be able to test as much foods as you possibly can to have a Rolodex of things that you can go to in case one thing sounds disgusting on the run or you start to get palate fatigue or maybe they don't have it at the aid stations, right? Or maybe something happens with the drop bag, right? All those things that you're going to want to think about when you're training for your hundred miler. So nutrition is a huge thing to get in there as well. Now, the next thing on the list that you want to talk about is, uh, is really looking at course specificity, course specificity. So when you're training for a hundred miler, it's really important to know the course that you were training for and what are the big variables and elements in there. Now I want to preface this thing to say, I think this is an area that a lot of people put way too much focus on in sacrifice of getting fit now what do i mean by that right so a lot of times people will come to me and they say like i'm training for this really hilly race that has a ton of vert it's at elevation and i live in florida or i live in somewhere flat um your concern shouldn't be i need to get in the climbing training like your number one concern should be get fit as possible get fit as possible and i'm not saying like don't get good at climbing. Don't do some elevation training. Like don't do any of those things. Like of course that's not what I'm saying, but usually that's the biggest worry of some people when really you should ask yourself, am I fit enough to do this course? And when I say fit enough, do you, are you, do you have the fitness to go the distance? Because in the end of the day, as I mentioned before, fitness is king. And the first thing you want to focus on is fitness because it doesn't matter how good of a climber you are. It doesn't matter how good you are in the heat. If you're not fit, you're not going to get through that finish line. So your number one priority should be fitness. But let's just say you are fit. Let's just say you are fit. You've, you know you can do the distance. You've gotten to that point. That's where you start to focus more on core specificity. And that's where it comes into heat training, elevation training, uh, doing a lot of incline if you're in a hilly race, running a lot more on technical trails if you're running on a technical thing. That's where that core specificity comes into place. Now, um, the value of core specificity, yes, it's helpful because it prevents that shock factor for sure. Because um, like, I'll give you all an example. Like one time I attempted a uh, like a, uh, a challenge in the Adirondack Mountains where you are going to go through and basically what they have there is um, they have 46 what they call high peaks. They're not really that high. I think it's I think it's just mountains over 4,000 feet, which for New York, that's quote unquote high. But I know a lot of you uh, West Coasters and Colorado people are like, what the hell? That's not high. Yes, totally get it. And so at the time I like saw this challenge and I was like, you know what, how, how bad could it be? Right. It's just mountains over 4,000 feet. It's not too bad. And little did I know like how just brutal and rugged those trails were. And, uh, yeah, it just threw my brain for a loop because I, you know, I wasn't prepared for the course. And I think the best thing that you can do is just know the course of what you're getting into. So what I always suggest is a few different things. Number one, always read the course description on the website, which is great, but the best move, by far, even better than the course description, is going on YouTube and trying to find a walkthrough of the specific race that you're looking to do. So let's just say you're looking to train for Havelina 100. You would just put Havelina 100 course walkthrough or Havelina 100 100 miler. And there's, I guarantee, especially for a lot of ultras out there, there's probably at least one person who has recorded some of the trail out there. And so that's going to give you a good feel of what it looks like and what to prepare for. And then obviously reading the uh, course website is going to be huge too. Now you want to do this early on in your training just so you know 
know when to plan when you're going to work on technical trains, when you're going to work on like getting on trail specific stuff, if you can, if you have the accessibility to do those things, right? But knowing what you're getting into offhand first is really, really important because it reduces the shock factor of, let's just say you think a race is just super easy and runnable and you go to this thing and you're like scrambling up boulders and it's super rocky and technical and jagged. Like that kind of shock to the to the brain can be really, really tough, especially when you're in a hundred mile race. So you want to get as familiar with the course as possible. Now, again, you want to get familiar with it, but you don't have to like orient every single run to the specificity of the course, right? You can still you know, go ahead and run on roads for like a really technical trail race to build fitness. But what you're going to want to do is at the very least, at the end of your kind of training, as I mentioned, least specific first to most specific, when you get into that most specific phase, if you have access to trails that are similar in terrain, it doesn't have to be exactly one-to-one, but at least are somewhat similar to the course that you're doing, you're going to want to do a lot of those long runs on that course specific terrain. Now, if you don't have course specific terrain around you, no worries at all. Again, it's not that big of a deal. What's going to be much more important is like seeing how you can uh, adapt to those things if you have possible. So usually like, let's just say you live in Florida and you're training for a race like Leadville, where it has a lot of climbing, you might want to do something where, you know, you go out for a two hour run on the trails and then you might go to a gym after and then do, you know, 30 minutes of treadmill repeats, like where you're just kind of on a hill, just kind of going up and down. Right. Or you might want to like throw in some hill repeats in the middle of your trail run to kind of simulate those conditions as well. So thinking about ways where you can attack the specificity of the course is going to be absolutely huge and where you're going to kind of go to as well. But you want to know what you're getting into and you want to at least train for some of those things after the fitness has been taken care of in the later part of the race. And again, you don't have to do these things like earlier on, especially if you're like training for a really verty race. Like you don't have to like blast your legs with vert early on. Like what you can do is just get in there as well. Now, one thing on the vert side, and um, I always say this as well, if you are very uncomfortable with vert, and you want to implement a speed block where you're doing intervals, I always suggest doing those intervals as hill repeats. Because here's the thing, you build the uphill efficiency and the uh, the comfortability of going uphill and kind of doing those, those uh, or getting the vertical gain on feet. And you're also getting the benefits of doing the VO2 max or the lactate threshold interval targeting work that's going to allow you to get faster. So that's just one caveat and all that to say like if you are very nervous about the climbing and honestly if you're just doing a race with climbing in general I always suggest to do intervals on hills in general but that'll give you a thing where you can start to get a little bit course specific earlier on without robbing the fitness benefits that you're going to get of the specific training uh, focus that you're in which would be speed work in that phase right. So just something to think about to have that on there as well um, is the course specificity. The next thing is that on the list that you really want to go for, or you really want to make sure you have tuned down for a hundred mile race is the gear. So what kind of gear is like an absolute must? Um, I say for a hundred miles, um, I mean, you want to have some sort of hydration apparatus. So whether that's, you know, and again, it all depends, all depends on the 100 mile format, the race, the crew access, all those different things as well um, is, and like that's a whole nother topic on its own. But in terms of training, I usually like to say you want at least, you know, two sets of handhelds just in case. And then you want at least a pack to have with a hydration bladder um, or at least uh, soft flasks inside the the vest as well. Um, if that is going to be something that you're using out there. Um, so do you use a belt or do you use a hydration vest? Honestly, it's all personal preference. I would say for the most people kind of starting out and for most 100 milers, you're probably going to want to use a hydration vest just because 
you want to be able to have more water capacity on you and you can carry more stuff with you. Now at Javelina, I've worn a belt for the past two years, but Zion 100, I wore a, uh, a hydration vest. Canyon's 100K. Earlier last year, I wore a hydration vest as well. Cocodona, I mean, I'll 100% be wearing a hydration vest. Um, that's 200 miles, much different ball game. But um, I usually suggest, you know, if you're just getting into a first 100 miler, unless it's like a looped course where you're seeing your crew every single mile, um, you, you you're likely going to want to have a hydration vest just to have the extra capacity of water. Because here's the thing I always say, like a lot of times people like worry about, Oh, like I don't want to be carrying too much weight and everything like that. And yes, of course you don't want to be like carrying like a backpacking backpack on a hundred mile run because that's going to put unnecessary strain on your shoulders and it's just going to be unnecessary. However, like if you're making the call or kind of like strung up on the decision of like, should I wear this hydration vest to save me like one or two ounces of weight? Like those are, again, I don't think it's as important. And to be honest, I would always rather, and this is what I suggest my athletes, I would rather the athletes carry a little bit more stuff with them than to skimp out on it just for the sake of weight. Because here's the, here's the reality. The reality is you having a little bit heavier gear is going to be way less detrimental than if you don't have enough nutrition or hydration out there by far bar none. So like I always say, err on the side of a little aggressive when it comes to the things you're bringing. Don't overload the pack to the point where it's so freaking heavy that like it's just hurting, but you want to always do it on the side of, you know, um, can you dive into something that's, um, you know, going to be able to carry all those things, which usually is a hydration vest. Now, my favorite hydration vest of all time is a Salomon Advanced Skin 12. Um, it is perfect. It is amazing. Um, it has a lot of storage in there and it feels very skin um, molding. So like it doesn't really feel like you're wearing a pack. So I love that pack to death. It is amazing. Um, I did have one for a while and then it broke. So I'm currently in the process of getting a new one um, and I'm going to like likely be wearing that for Cocodona. And then, um, as I kind of said earlier in the episode, like my go-to hydration soft flasks and, um, hydration apparatus are all by HydroPack. Like they're great, awesome material, um, super, super, uh, useful and easy to kind of flip off and refill and do all those things as well. So anything by HydroPack, I like for the actual soft flasks and the hydration, uh, bladder that's in there as well. Um, but you want to be sure to get that in there just so you can carry all this stuff. Because like I said before, like nutrition is a huge part and hydration is a huge part. And you want to be sure to have those in there as well. The other thing too, that you want to be super, super mindful of is having multiple pairs of shoes. Now, again, I know not everybody's in the right situation or in the, in a situation where you can have like tons and tons of shoes, right? Totally get that. I always suggest having at least two pairs of shoes, not just throughout the training, but like to have in the run as well. And because there's going to be a lot of times where you'll need to potentially change shoes due to blisters, or maybe they're wet, or maybe you just want a different feel of things. But having two pairs of shoes that you can like interchangeably go out of on the race and in your training is going to be a good um, thing to have on there as well. And something that's not always coming to front of mind if you're doing like a 50K or a 50 mile or something a little shorter right so just something to keep in mind for that too and then the last thing is you want to be sure to have like clothing that actually like feels good and is good to um run in because here's the thing like you don't want to be chafing out there you don't want to wear things that are uncomfortable because you're probably going to be wearing those clothes for a long long time unless you're changing out in the middle of ultras which uh in terms of changing i've only changed out shirts like a few times i changed actually my shirt at javelina this year just because it was colder at night um but you want to be sure that whatever you were testing out in your training is going to translate well on race day and that would be the thing too is like you want to for your long runs you want to race or not race you want to run 
in your race kit. That That's where I'm going for there. You want to run in your race kit as much as possible, especially on those super long runs, because that's going to allow you to ultimately know for sure, like, okay, this gear is going to work. And that not just goes for the apparel. It goes for the pack. It goes for the hydration apparatus. It goes for the shoes. It goes for everything that you're using on there. And you want to be bulletproof sure that you're going to be able to get through those things at the end of the day. So that is uh, one other thing is gear, and that's that stuff is super important. So the musts, I think, are like at least two pairs of shoes, um, gear that is comfortable, and uh, when I say gear, I mean like apparel that is comfortable, and that's like you know is not going to screw with you, and hydration apparatus for sure. Um, there are other things out there, like headlamp, of course, you're probably going to need that because likely you'll be running in the dark. Um, headlamp, you'll want that as well, and have that in there too. Um, so those are just some things as well to practice as well, um, which headlamp kind of comes to the last thing it's like what are some 100 mile specifics that you can train for in your race because i hear it all the time should i train for night training or should i like do sleep deprivation training where i'm kind of doing all those things these kind of have like a fine line to them and so why, why i say fine line is because for a few different reasons the fine line on this is like yes if you're very very nervous about running at night or if you're very, very nervous about running when you're kind of sleep deprived, which is definitely more 200 mile focus, but if you're doing a very long 100 miler, like meaning like time-wise of where you could be out there, there could be some benefits in that from a confidence perspective. But from a physiological perspective, what you have to balance out is the impact that it has on your training in the middle of it. So what do I mean by that? Right. So I actually had a client that I was working with and, um, you know, he was pretty confident and running at night and, and things like that. And I remember talking with him and he mentioned like, oh, is there any value of doing night training? And my, my always follow up question to that is, well, how do you feel about running at night? Are you scared of it? Are you nervous of it? And he's like, no, like I'm totally fine running with it. And I said, great, like that's awesome. Then I wouldn't do night training. And the reason why I said I wouldn't do night training is because when you do night training, generally that's during a time where you've been up all day and you're now going to do a long run at night. Um, and I'm talking long run specifically, like an hour long run, an hour run or an hour and a half run. That's totally fine. I'm talking long runs specifically at night, and I should have clarified that earlier, but long runs specifically at night, um, they do have a lot of high risk from a physiological perspective just because generally you're on your feet, or, or I shouldn't say on your feet, but you're awake all day, and now you might be going into a three, four hour long run at night where you're already pretty fatigued, plus like catching up on sleep, like the next day you might not sleep um, you know, might not get enough sleep in there. You might be like really groggy all day because your body clock's kind of messed up and you can mess up recovery a little bit. So not saying it's going to be detrimental to the point where it's going to screw you up completely, but it is definitely a little bit more risky because you're throwing in a deeper level of fatigue than you would normally get on a regular run if you were doing it throughout the day. Now, again, if you need to be confident in those areas and you're like, I'm like scared shitless of running in the dark and I don't know how to do it. And honestly, if you've never done it before, I suggest maybe doing it once. But here's the thing. You don't have to do it on your long runs. Like you can do it on your hour easy runs or anything like that. Obviously, be safe out there in the dark for sure. Um, but you don't have to do these like mega long runs at night to do it as well. And the same thing goes with sleep deprivation training like you don't have to like go through and and you know do those sleep deprivation things and 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 risk those things but again if you're like scared of that and you want to build the confidence that you can do it there is a value of doing it so I guess like my whole point around this is like you want to ask yourself is this something or, or why why do I want to train at night why do I want to do sleep deprivation training and if the answer is I want to build confidence around these things because I'm just like quite frankly unsure if I can do it yeah go for it but if you're like I'm not that worried about running at night or I'm not that worried about running sleep deprived. I would say you probably don't have to necessarily do it just because the risk reward is 
interestingly enough, because a really important thing on top of just building fitness is also the, um, is also getting the adequate amount of rest. And if you're doing these high volume periods and you're not getting the right rest, it can be a recipe for disaster for sure. Um, yeah, so that is just something to think about and, and always something that I, um, I mentioned in there as well. So, um, yeah, that's the, the core specific stuff. Um, now one thing that you can do to get really core specific and get some good practice. And I always suggest doing this. And this is when you're mapping out your training, right? When you're mapping out your training, I totally suggest having a tune up race leading up to your big hundred miler. And generally what that is, is just a race that's going to be able to give you the practice tools that you need. All the things that we talked about, right? Uh, pace, oh, by the way, I'll talk about pacing too, but, um, uh, which is important, but that's a whole, this is a very much a training for a hundred miler. Um, we'll go through a hundred mile race strategy in a different episode, but what I also want to talk about is in your training, you want to plan some tune up races that are going to be able to practice the things we talked about, right? The fitness, the pacing, the mental toughness, nutrition, core specificity, gear, all those things you want to be able to practice. And you could do so in a race environment with a tune up race. Now a tune up race, what I suggest is doing anywhere between a 50 K to a 50 mile, um, in a time frame that's, I would say at most, uh, about a month before the actual race itself. Now you can do it much earlier if you want. You can do it six months earlier. You can do it five months earlier. It doesn't really matter, but I always like to suggest doing it at a point where it's at least a month earlier. So you have some more time to capitalize on the things that you learn during that specific tune-up race in other long runs that you have in there as well. So, um, that's why I usually like those things as well. And so I always say too, when you're looking at a 50 miler or a 50 K as a tune-up race, that's the timing part you want to look at, but you also want to try and make it as course specific as you possibly can. So for example, if you're running a race like Havelina 100 and it's very runnable, it's a little bit punchy with the climbs, but not nothing too crazy. It's hot. What you might want to look at is a summer race that has a lot of those same characteristics, right? A lot of the same vert characteristics, the trail characteristics, the weather characteristics, but just on a shorter distance um, based on those things as well. So like that is something you really, really want to try and put inside of your training protocol to test those things out because that race when you do it is going to be a good indication of how well you're doing in your training or where you're at from that perspective to have it on there and that's why I say like at most you want to do this a month before because let's just say you do one of those races and you know maybe nutrition doesn't go right maybe your heating or cooling strategy doesn't go right in the hot race you want to have at least two weekends of long runs where you can go ahead and, and work on those things so you can be able to do it. And the earlier that you can do it, the better. Just make sure that you're trained up to the point where you can handle that tune-up race like a 50 miler or a 50K. And like I mentioned with the minimum maximum principle before, the same thing applies to 50K and 50 mile, except it's not nine hours for the peak six weeks. It is six hours for the peaks three weeks. So if you're at your point in your training, where you're hitting six hours of running for three weeks in a row, that's a point where you can amply add in a 50K or a 50 miler. And you can add in multiple. Like, you don't have to just do one tune-up race. You can do two tune-up races. You can do three tune-up races. It doesn't really matter. As long as it fits with the schedule and you're not overdoing it and you're putting it in a way where you can complete it, that's going to be super, super huge. So that is something I 100% suggest to do. And in those races, you want to practice all those things as well. And then after the tune-up races, then you want to orient your training on the long runs after that to work on the things that maybe you need to improve on in those uh, tune-up races itself. Now, if you can't do a tune-up race, totally get it, right? Travel, schedule, budget, all those things might not be in the realm of getting in tune-up races, and that's totally okay. What I would suggest is to do a simulation run. So um, I'm also working with another client, and you know there was no tune-up races in the area, 
that we could really go for, um, you know, given, given a race that she has coming up. And so instead what we're doing is we're doing a 36 mile race simulation race or not race simulation race race simulation training run that's it race simulation training run and in that you know it's going to be 36 miles we're going to have her go at the pace that she would in 100 miles we're going to have her go through those things as well and uh, ultimately do all the things that she's going to do nutrition mental toughness the gear that she's going to wear and making sure that she has all those things in there now it's not perfect one-to-one because aid station efficiency is something you can practice in a tune-up race but really not necessarily practice as one-to-one in a training run. Now, I always suggest have different checkpoints, whether it's your car at certain places or whether, you know, you're able to bump bump off the trail or the road and go into like a Circle K or like a gas station or something like that. You can make mock aid stations along the way and practice that efficiency, but because you're not going to likely have crew or people helping you out in those scenarios as you would in an aid station, it's not going to be perfectly one-to-one, but at least it could teach you those things as well. But anyways, I would, if you can't do a tune-up race, I would definitely do at least one of those race simulation runs to get you there as well, for sure. So that is just something else to think about with that as well when you're going for, you know, planning your overall training. Now, the one thing I also just do want to mention is is the pacing part. And this will go into like racing 100 miles, but it's really, really important to, to think about this in terms of your training as well. When you are training, you want to make sure, and by the way, that wraps it on tune-up races and race simulations. So I just want to say that that bow is closed. We're moving now on to the last thing, which is like pacing and how you ultimately be able to think about how you're going to be running 100 miles and how that translates into your long runs. With 100 miles, you have to pace them very smart. You have to pace them very, very smart. Um, and because if you don't, it's a very, very long distance. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes besides nutrition that I see in hundred miles is a lot of people go out way too fast, way, way too fast, like incredibly fast. And what happens is you might feel great for like the first 30 miles, 40 miles running at that faster pace. And it's easy to run at a faster pace when you have the energy, the excitement, you're tapered, like you're well-rested, like you're just like in the groove, you're in the zone and you might run out faster. And here's the thing too, your perceived effort is actually going to be lower relative to your abilities in that scenario in a race because you have all this adrenaline and excitement and anxious energy that's pumping through your body. And so you feel like you're running like at an easy clip, but you actually might be running harder for your capabilities because you have all this adrenaline in your system. So it's very easy. It's easier. It's way easier said than done to pace, uh, pace hundred miles pretty, pretty well. Um, for me, when I designed 100, I told myself, I was like, I'm going to pace it great. And honestly, for the first like 20 miles or so, I did pace it great. Like my easy runs were pretty much like an 830 pace. And I remember I went out and my first thing, I was like, I'm going to do 930s and 10s and I'm going to go through and do that. And uh, it was great. I I went through great. I went through well. And then what happened was I started talking with someone out there. Now I'm not blaming the person because it's hundred percent on me. So don't, don't, don't feel like I'm blaming the person out there for talking, but I lost track of it and I was feeling really good. And, um, we re- I remember both him and I, we realized like 10 minutes later or 10 miles later after we were talking, we were like, whoa, we were going like really fast. We're going like low eight minute miles. And uh, I believe that was one thing that led to me just kind of a course with the stomach and everything else that I kind of dealt with on that hundred miles. As you can see, like I did a, a lot of things not great on that first hundred mile race, which is why I coach people to not do those mistakes because I learned the hard way and I don't want you to do the hard way. But uh, what I learned on there is like the value of pacing and pacing is not just like for the first 20 miles 
miles, it's not just for the first 30 miles, it's for the first 60 miles. Because even after 60 miles, even after 100K, you still have nearly 40 miles to go. And so that's just something to think about with the pacing. And so how that translates in your training is you want to be able to, like, honestly, the, the slower, the better. And I don't mean, like, run pace slow. I mean, run intensity slow. And so, like, if it feels easy, good. It should be. You shouldn't be doing these long runs where you're feeling like you're just absolutely pushing to the max and killing yourself and just really going hard to the grindstone because here's the reality. Like, with those 100-mile races, like, you need to have the patience and the ability to go at a slower intensity than you're probably normally used to. And that is totally fine because... It's going to serve you in the long haul because if you just go out of the, the gate guns blazing, especially even in your long runs too, that last, you know, two hours, three hours or in a hundred miler could be 10 hours can be just a death march. So in your long runs, you want to be able to go at a low intensity. It should feel like you should go at that intensity all day. It should feel, you know, like you're enjoying it and just like it's easy and like you're not like pushing it. Now, of course, you're going to get to a point in these long runs where you're going to have to push and it's going to get hard and you're going to have to dig deep. Don't get me wrong on that. But it you shouldn't feel like when you're first starting out these runs, like you're you're running like a, a 5K PR or like a marathon PR, right? Like you want to take it easier than normal because the easier you go, the, the more you build your endurance capabilities, the more you build the mental patience to be able to handle that as well. And ultimately, the faster you end up going, because here's the thing, you might not be going fast pace wise, like relative to where you know you can be if you're kind of gunning it. But the reality is if you pace it slower earlier on, you actually might get more of an even split throughout a 100 mile race. And because of that, like the overall average pace might be faster, right? So something to think about as well. So something to think about in there as well. Like I'll give you an example, like a lot of the times, you know, uh, or I said, should say for like the first like 40 miles of Zion 100, I think my average pace overall was like nine minutes, but I think I finished. So I finished it in just under 24 hours, my first hundred miler. And so my average pace was just under 1424, which I know is the 24 hour, hundred mile, uh, splits, um, or I should say average pace. So even though I ran, you know, pretty much like low or like mid nines and like my first like 20 miles or, or 30 miles, 40 miles, so to say, even though I ran like low nines, like my average pace was still like around 1420. And that's so interesting because it's like, wow, if I just ran 1420s the entire time, I would have gotten the same effort. So like, that's like the thing that I always tell myself is like, yes, even though I might be going slower in the beginning, um, it might even out in the end because my drop off isn't going to be as vicious. Um, now I'm not saying like, don't run to your potential. Don't run, you know, slower on purpose, like just to, you know, sacrifice performance that you can get out there. That's why I like going by perceived effort because perceived effort will ultimately give you you know, the ability to run inside your skill set for how you feel, which if you're curious about perceived effort, I just released an episode. It's called heart rate training versus training by feel. Um, it talks all about perceived effort and how to implement it in your training. Um, but if you go by perceived effort, you know, you don't have to worry about like shortchanging performance or anything like that, but you want to notch down the perceived effort. And as I mentioned before, for a lot of your long runs and a lot of your runs in a hundred mile training, you're going to want to do it uh, at a two to three RPE out of 10 rate of perceived effort out of 10. Um, but I usually like to, for a lot of the long, long runs lean on more of a two than a three just because you know you get to really really lean into that easy feeling that you're going to get out there on the trails in your first 100 mile race so please pay smart and don't go out too hard and that's something you can practice in your training by developing the patience all right and yeah, that's it in terms of everything you need to train for a hundred mile race successfully. And I want to say to a hundred miles can be daunting. It can be like nerve wracking. It can be like, oh my God, this is a lot of fucking miles because yes, you're hundred percent right. It is a lot of fucking miles. 
Here's the thing, though. I truly believe that anyone can run a 100-mile race. Now, I'm not saying that anyone can run a 100-mile race tomorrow because if someone has never ran, you know, a certain amount of miles, then they can do it tomorrow. But on a timeline that fits into the ability of where that person can build up to that specific requirement to get to that 100-mile thing, I truly believe everyone can do it with the right training, with the right intention, with the right mindset. And if you're listening to this podcast, listen all the way through about an hour and a half into it. I can tell you that you have the mindset, the dedication and wanting to do it because the people who are willing to learn and apply these things and really have intention around the 100 miles are going to be a lot more successful at it because, and that's you, yes, that's you listening, because I think there is, it's not a complex way to train for a 100 mile race, but far too, it it can be far too easy to just wing it. And I truly believe like a hundred miles, like, listen, I I believe people can wing a half marathon. People can even wing a marathon. I've seen people wing marathons all the time, but when it comes to like the ultra, like, you know, a hundred mile things, unless you're like David Goggins or some other freak of nature, right? Um, shouldn't say David Goggins is a freak of nature. He's awesome. But what I'm saying is that like hundred miles, you need to have a little bit more intentionality. If you want to set yourself up for the best results on that day and results, I don't mean like the time you're finishing or the place you're finishing. I mean, like if you want to do this and have an experience where you're proud of yourself, you want to do this with intention and you listening to this episode shows me that you have intention. So I want to say I'm proud of you and I'm, I'm really just stoked for you, whether you're going for your first hundred miler or fifth, hundred miler or anything like that, or even just thinking about hundred miles in the future and you're looking to see like what the training is like. I know you're going to do it. And uh, if there's anything I can do to help, always feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. I'm at Joe Corsione. My DMs these days have been just pretty, pretty flooded. So if it takes me like, you know, uh, four or five days to, to get back to you, please, uh, uh, just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I always make it a priority to try and get back to as many people as possible. Um, but, uh, if you do send me a DM, I will get back to you as soon as I can answer your questions, make sure you have everything too. Uh, my email is also everydayultrapodcast at gmail.com. By the way, um, if you are interested in coaching too, um, I'm currently full as of now. Um, but, um, I am opening up a few more spots next week. However, we do have a pretty packed wait list. So I would assume that those five spots are going to go on the wait list. But if you would like, to go on the wait list in case um you know there is more spots that open up um feel free to email me at everydayultrapodcast at gmail.com let me know you want to be at the wait list and i will put you on there it is first come first serve basis and we will get you on there for sure but just to let you know like if you're listening to this and you want a little more personalized programming for your training i'm happy to do so happy to do it once the time fills up and again if you have any questions always feel free to reach out and i'm happy to help because i'm super grateful of you listening to this podcast my friends All right, everybody, let's go out in this 2024. Let's race our 100 mile races. Let's hit our training hard and ultimately be on the path of being better endurance athletes every single day. That's why we're here. We're going to be coming out with so many more amazing episodes on recovery, incline training, uh, race strategies, nutrition. So many different topics are coming out of this as well, along with so many great guests. So just stay tuned for some incredible content coming out here in the next months within 2020 where we're going to dive deep into all these subjects and remember my friends be a better endurance athlete every day we'll talk soon and thank you for everything that you do take care and keep crushing out there